This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Available now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all major streaming platforms. Hello, this is David Zayas, and you're listening to Inside Oz. See my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three bitches. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common. Try to find a common thing that binds us all. Prime. Prime is the common thing. See, we are all of us back there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Oz, the original. Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Just want to say a big thank you to David Zayers for recording that introduction for the show there. We actually got that sorted quite some time ago, as David was an early follower of the podcast and has been nothing but supported ever since, and I'm glad to have finally been able to use that now that he's on the show. So David, if you're listening, thank you very much for doing that. Today, though, we are going to be talking about Series 4, Episode 6, A Word to the Wise. Holding an 8.3 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sunil Nair and Bradford Winters, with Sean Weitzel as executive story editor. The episode was directed by Keith Samples, back to direct his third episode of the show, and back for the first time since Series 3, Episode 3. Since he was last involved with the show, Keith earned director credits for Party of Five, directing the episode Dog Day After New Year in the show's sixth season, as well as the WB's Roswell, directing the episode Blind Date as part of that show's first season. The episode was originally broadcast on August 16th, 2000, a day on which delegates at the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles formally nominated Al Gore for the US presidential election, an airliner was hijacked in Brazil and forced to land in Piranha, with the hijackers making off with a cool $3.3 million, while in the music charts, Cisco held the number one spot in the US Billboard Singles chart with Incomplete, while in the UK, nearly 200,000 people were fooled into sending Robbie Williams to the top of the chart, marking his third number one single, Rock DJ. While at the US box office, Hollow Man held on to the number one spot for a second straight week, grossing over $13 million. While in the UK, Gone in 60 Seconds took in a little over £1 million at the top of the chart in what was a lacklustre summer at UK cinemas. There's all kinds of slang words for prison. The join, the slammer the big house, 
But my personal favorite is the clink. That's because the word comes from the sound the chains made back in the 1400s. They had these big ass motherfucking iron chains. The prisoners weren't allowed to talk, so when they moved around the dungeon, all you heard was clink. Kick off with Act 1, which sees Augustus wearing the black and white striped prison uniform of the past, explaining the various nicknames given to prisons and how the clink is his personal favourite. Explaining about the sound that the chains linking the inmates would make as they clink together. As the light comes up behind him and we see some inmates in the same get-up being marched around by COs. This opening and some of the later vignettes we have with Augustus was very similar to previous opening segments that we've had on the show. In particular, the Cruel and Unusual Punishment episode from Series 3. I did quite like it though, and Prison Lingo was a segment that I considered in the early days of the podcast, just giving a brief explanation of the jargon that we hear throughout the show, but it's actually quite fun just to pick it up as we go along. The episode gets underway proper with Officer Travis Smith transferring out some more inmates to Unit B, particularly those who are of a white complexion, including Gugione, Harden and Scherner, who we've never seen before and most likely will never see again. Poet bids them farewell as Adebisi gets the attention of young black inmate Vincent, played by Vincent Darboos, who we saw briefly in Series 2 when he was being used as a prag by Adebisi in the showers, and he turned up again in Series 3 as one of the Christian inmates protesting the watching of Miss Sally's schoolyard. Adebisi beckons Vincent to his pod, Vincent giving a silent but telling oh shit look as he knows exactly what's coming as he makes his way up the stairs. As Saeed watches on from his own pod, Vincent enters Adebisi's pod with him as Adebisi tells Vincent to blow him. Vincent gets down to his knees as Adebisi starts to undo his trousers, but this is obviously a loving moment between the two of them that Adebisi wants to be private, so he draws his makeshift curtains across the pod glass so that Saeed can't watch. Just to clear up here as well, last episode I said that the debuting Officer Johnson was played by Jerome Preston Bates, when in fact that role was played by Cyrus Farmer. This is, in fact, the debut of Jerome Preston Bates on the show playing Officer Smith, which, it's an easy mistake to make, there are a lot of moving parts in M-City at the moment. Smith even mentions an Officer Keating, who we don't see on screen, but who I think is another new name on the show. Down in the laundry room, Quernes is telling some poor engineer, you gotta fix this thing by noon, as Saeed enters and asks Quernes whether or not he condones Adebisi's recent actions, mentioning drugs as well as the sex, and draws attention to the curtain he's using in his pod describing it as Adebisi hiding his sins. Giving Saeed the cold shoulder, Quan says that he doesn't have to explain himself, and especially not to Saeed. While he does agree with that, Saeed threatens to go to Leo instead, with Quan's throwing in his own threat of sending Saeed to the hole. Saeed tells Quan's that others have tried to silence him in the past, but Quan's tells him that others ain't me, and that he can arrange for Saeed to be transferred to another unit should he so desire but otherwise Saeed can do what he does best and pray to Allah and keep his mouth shut. Having been so verbally savaged, Saeed heads off as a passing Adebisi gives Quernes a smile and greets some more new black arrivals to M-City, with Quernes heading back to his office accompanied by a hip-hop beat in the score. While he's supposed to be one of the villains of the piece, Quernes was fucking brilliant here and it's easy to see why he's such a fan favourite. He does take Saeed's threat of going to Leo seriously though, hence why he threatens to send him to the hole. But we've seen before that when a character goes there, they can be gone for a week or two weeks, sometimes even a month in terms of the storyline's time frame, during which time a lot can happen, especially at the rate that Quernes is currently making changes at. While it doesn't completely undermine Saeed's position, 
Even though he isn't the official leader of the Muslims right now, which we'll talk more about in a moment, it does show that Querns, and by extension Adebisi, currently wield the power within MC. Said heads up to his pod where Arif is reading his Quran. Said tells him to look out of the pod, snatching Arif's book away from him in the process, and asks if he can see what's going on. Arif says that he can, with Said asking how can he just sit there if that's the case, and that Arif told him that he wanted to lead, and asks him to do so in the name of all that is holy. Arif's leadership credentials was a subject of debate recently on the Oz subreddit, and my take on it is that he's essentially found himself in a position that he is nowhere near close to being prepared for. He was a solid second-in-command to Saeed until he was ousted by the group, and was then a solid second-in-command to Hamid Khan. Following Hamid's injury in the boxing tournament and his death shortly thereafter, Arif has found himself thrust into the leader's position, something which he was obviously not ready for and as a result has seen the Muslim group fall further and further down the political pecking order, culminating in being shunned for a trustee position, at least in Arif's eyes. And I think deep down Arif knows that he isn't the one to lead the group, hence why he's kept Saeed around. Granted, he does often try and display his authority, but Saeed has been silently leading the group from the back for some time now. Cuts Gwen's office where he's finishing up a phone call, which he seems to be really enjoying. I'd love to know who he was talking to and he calls for Smith to bring Arif in. Arif starts off by moaning about how he's been trying to get five minutes with Querns for a number of days, Querns hitting back with, you got them now, don't waste them by complaining. Arif asks why he wasn't named a trustee, saying that Muslims make up 18% of Oz's population, so close to one in five, and that as their leader, he expects some kind of representation. Querns acknowledges that the Muslim population is large, but as I mentioned a moment ago, he says that as a force, they seem to be somewhat rudderless. Arif tells Querns to wait, and that he'll feel the full force of the Muslim's power. Channeling the spirit of Beavis as Cornholio, Querns asks if Arif is threatening him, even making his way around his desk and twice prodding Arif hard in the arm, and tells him to get his ass out of his office, Arif doing just that as he takes a look towards the classroom where he sees Supreme talking with Bismillah played by Ra Hanna, who's been on the show since the beginning, but has mostly been limited to appearing in the background. His biggest moment on the show so far was when he was the last to leave Saeed's side when he was ousted by Hamid. Despite having been on the show since its inception in what was his acting debut, this is only Ra's second episode credit, his only previous one coming in the Series 4 opener, A Cock and Ball Story. His only other acting credit at this point in time was for an episode in the debut season of Third Watch on NBC appearing in the episode A Thousand Points of Light, which was broadcast in April 2000. Saeed approaches his pod where Arif is talking with Bismillah, asking him why he was talking with Supreme, Bismillah saying they were doing just that, talking, but Arif doesn't want him to go anywhere near Supreme again, and says that that's an order, with Bismillah giving a reluctant yes sir before being dismissed from the pod so that Arif can pray. Saeed climbs onto his bunk as Arif lays down his prayer rug, a noticeable tension in the air, but with neither man speaking to the other. The fact that Saeed, or any of the other Muslims for that matter, are not praying together at the moment is another example of the lack of unity within the group right now. While it's not written that Muslims must pray together, it is considered good for them to do so, as it's meant to show a strong spirit of community, as well as being equal in the eyes of Allah. Saeed takes a look down to the floor of M-City, where he sees Bismillah talking with Supreme once again with Supreme even removing Bismillah's kufi, perhaps signifying Bismillah's defection from the group. 
cut to the cafeteria where Poet, who's still wearing Pierce's old hat, is delivering a new piece as Arif confronts Supreme, who somehow landed himself a job in the kitchen. What'd I tell you, Ketchum? My name's Supreme Allah. Your name is Kevin Ketchum. You're nothing but a low-life corner boy. What are you, Arif? A little in a Kareem Saeed wannabe. I'm not wanting you again. Back in M-City, Adebisi leaves his pod, closing his curtain to hide whatever debauchery he's been up to, as Arif approaches him saying that they need to talk about Supreme. Arif's still referring to him by his given surname, clearly not buying any of Supreme's Muslim or 5%er outlook. He describes Supreme as a danger to both of them, saying that Supreme is going around converting everyone to his way of thinking. Adebisi though says that he isn't worried, but Arif tells him that he should be, as pretty soon everyone will be following Supreme's orders, essentially giving him control of M-City at the inmate level. Adabizi, however, tells Arif that he and Supreme have an understanding, as Arif says that Supreme can't be trusted. Asking where Arif is going with all of this, and with Arif saying that Adabizi should do what he normally does when confronted with an enemy, Adabizi asks if Arif wants him to kill Supreme. Arif keeps quiet at that suggestion, but it's clear what his answer is as Adebisi laughs it off and mentions about how he thought the Muslims were against murder, making Arif out to be a hypocrite if it's Adebisi who does the killing. Arif tries to reason with Adebisi, but Adebisi firmly tells him that the answer is no, and that if Arif wants Supreme dead, then to grab a knife and to do it himself, before heading down the stairs. Like a proper grass, Adebisi heads straight over to Supreme to have a word, although we're not privy to what's being said, as both men look up towards Arif as the scene closes. So we're continuing to see the downfall of the Muslims as a group, made all the more apparent by Quern's referring to them as being rudderless. Not only do they not have a clear direction under Arif's leadership, but they also seem to be actually losing members now as well, which only weakens their position further amongst the M-City gang hierarchy. Fade up on a new day as McManus heads through the metal detector at reception where he sees Murphy working the desk. Murphy filling McManus in about his and Quern's parting of the ways, and how Leo reassigned him to the reception, but he says that he isn't cut out for desk work and that he'll likely be gone completely within a couple of weeks. In something of a role reversal from the previous episode, McManus comforts his friend, saying that he was out of order for being mad at him and saying that Murphy should have quit, and that given his behaviour at the time he was in no position to pass judgement on what Murphy or anyone else did, and for the first time in six episodes, he utters the immortal words.
bullshit. Murphy jokes about McManus sounding enlightened and asks whether or not he's found God. But McManus's new attitude is apparently down to finding an affordable psychiatrist. A possible nod to The Sopranos there, with McManus and Tony both seeing psychiatrists and both having been in relationships with a character played by Edie Falco, but it's probably just a coincidence more than anything else. Seemingly not content with asking every woman that he meets out on a date, McManus asks Murphy if he wants to get dinner, Murphy accepting on the proviso that McManus is paying. Good little scene this one, and it was good to see these two patch up the differences. McManus heads into the Unit B office, where he runs into Andrea, who seems happy that McManus' arrival signifies that morning has arrived and that she can probably go home. McManus asked whether it was a quiet night or not, with Andrea saying that if you consider two fistfights and some anal penetration to be a quiet one, then yeah, it was. I'm not even sure if I want to know what's considered a busy night if that's considered a quiet one. Mamanus also seems to snigger when Andrea mentions about someone being anally penetrated, which adds a whole new dark level to McManus' persona that could be worth exploring at some point. Andrea tells him that it was Jazz and Keenan who got into the fistfights, as McManus sounds the bell to release everyone from their slumber. A good night's sleep doesn't seem to have eased the tensions between the two men though as Jazz gives Keenan a little shoulder barge and they exchange words and get into another fight, Theo's running in to break it up as McManus watches on. Cut to Leo's office, where Quern's has gone to request the transferring of some officers in and out of M City, describing about how some of them are loyal to Murphy, and mentions that Officer Smith has been made the new CO supervisor. He hands Leo the list of names, and Leo just takes one look at them and says, "Yeah, okay," before passing it on to Mobe to get the paperwork done. So apparently, very easy to get things done just by taking Leo a piece of paper and saying, "I want this done." See, this is where people have been going wrong in the staff meetings, they haven't brought a piece of paper with them. Having gotten what he wants, Quern sweet-talks Leo a little more, asking how the campaign is going, Leo describing it as going great, as we cut to the staff room where Officer Armstrong, first time that we've seen him in a while, is saying that they should go and talk to Leo, but Menia says that he doesn't think it'll be worth it, as Leo has his head up Devlin's ass and isn't paying attention to their problems, and that maybe they'll be better off going to the Union. Although it's never said which one they're a part of, there are a number of different prison officer unions. Arriving on the scene and seemingly eavesdropping, McManus inquires about why they want to go to the union, Murphy bringing McManus up to speed about Quine's replacing all the CEOs in M-City with people of his own choosing. McManus points out that Quine's has the right to do that, which he does, so that's a fair point, but Menio mentions about how Quine's is only bringing in black officers. Taking a moment to let that sink in, McManus proposes that they come and work with him in Unit B as he could use the muscle, and says that he'll go to Leo and make the transfers himself. The three of them thank McManus as he says that they were a great team, which considering that the show has had a mere 49 deaths so far is a bit of an overstatement. Using the Quern's method of taking pieces of paper to Leo, but also one-upping him by putting his in a folder, McManus gets what he wants as Leo agrees to the transfers. He asks whether or not Leo is bothered about Quern's only wanting to have black officers work in M-City, Leo reiterating his point about how he agreed to let Quern's run the unit how he wanted so long as the violence was kept down, and says that there's been no significant nonsense in M-City since Quern's took over, meaning that he either hasn't been checking, or Quern's is very good at convincing him otherwise, as McManus asks how long does Leo think that will last as the scene closes. Never mind that, McManus, I'm more interested in seeing how long this new enlightened version of you is going to last, as I'm sure he'll slip back into his old ways soon enough. 
Cut to the changing rooms where Murphy is discussing his date night plans with McManus, mentioning about a Romanian place around the corner, saying that it may be a dump but the food is delicious, particularly the chilama de mil which if Google Translate is telling me the truth, is a meat based dish typically made with chicken but can also be made with lamb and served in a vegetable soup and white sauce. Admittedly it does look quite nice when made with lamb but I'm a bit cautious about whatever white sauce is. I need flavours in a description of something, don't just tell me what colour it is. Right on cue, McManus' previous Romanian food buddy Claire turns up, mocking the two of them referring to them as frickin' frack. I had absolutely no idea what that was a reference to so I had to look it up. And frickin' frack, real names Werner Grobli and Hans-Rudy Mauch respectively, were a comedy ice skating duo from Switzerland who moved to the US in 1937 before becoming part of the Ice Follies show. The duo were known for performing in alpine lederhosen and performing tricks such as the cantilever spread eagle, which Frick invented, while Frack was known for his rubber legs technique. Calling people Frick and Frack has been used in popular culture to refer to two people who are so close that they're barely indistinguishable, which is what Claire is going for here, but I can't say that it's something that's ever translated to here in the UK, as I've never heard it be used in any context outside of hearing it here. Claire mentions about Murphy and McManus working together again in Unit B, completely ignoring Menio and Armstrong, who are also changing in the background, and mentions that Leo has apparently got himself in a tizzy because Quern's was moving towards an all-black staff, so to balance things out, she's been transferred to MC. McManus questions the logic of the transfer as we close out Act 1. There's that Romanian place around the corner. It's a dump, but the food's delicious. Especially that Chumala de Mil. Wow. Frickin' frack. I hear you two choir boys are working together again in Unit B. That's right. I just gotta transfer myself. Seems the warden was in a tizzy because Quarren's all black CO's in M City. You're gonna work in Emerald City? Yeah. Life's full of ironies, isn't it? Act 2 gets underway down on death row where Nat is struggling with their worsening AIDS symptoms, so much so that it's keeping the other inmates awake during the night, Mark being particularly annoyed and says why can't you just hurry up and die already. Sister Beat goes to Leo after visiting Nat with Gloria, who is informed of that Nat doesn't have long to live, but that they're tired of fighting the disease and that Nat has asked her to ask Leo if it would be possible to move their execution forward. Leo says that he's never known anyone to ask to be executed early and that the court sets specific dates and there is no legal precedent to change that. In the US when an execution warrant is issued, usually after any appeals have been exhausted, the Department of Corrections or the Federal Bureau of Prisons depending on which state you're in must carry out the execution within a certain time frame from the date when the warrant is signed. This can depend on whether the case is being held in a federal court or not and can also vary from state to state with Alabama conducting executions no less than 30 days and no more than 100 days after the warrant is issued, while in Georgia an execution shall commence no less than 20 days and no more than 60 days from the date of the order. In the case of New York State when this episode went to air, the death penalty still being in place at the time before being repealed in 2007, executions were carried out no less than 30 days and no more than 60 days after the signing of an order the exact date of which was left to the commissioner's discretion within the decided upon week, with the date and hour of the execution announced to the public no later than seven days prior to the execution. 
Should an execution not be carried out before the warrant expires, the inmate will be returned to death row to await a new execution date. A warrant expiring is not to be confused with a stay of execution, which is something which we'll talk about in a future episode. While there may not be a precedent right now, Pete suggests that maybe they should start one, which Leo points out is completely at odds with her previous stance on capital punishment. While Pete isn't changing her view on the death penalty, she does say that in this particular case, ending Nat's life would be a blessing, with Leo pointing out, ah, but that would be euthanasia, something which he says that the church is against. Pete says there's a lot of things that the church is against that she isn't, a line which changes the atmosphere completely as Leo agrees to call the lawyers and see what he can do. While Leo and Pete are often in disagreement about certain subjects, the death penalty being a particular sticking point throughout the course of the show, with Leo holding the conservative view while Pete has the more liberal approach, they never actively seem to be against one another. There's always this respect between the two of them, and while they do both stick to their beliefs, they often come to some kind of compromise. Leo calling the prison's lawyers isn't him admitting defeat and giving in to what Pete wants, but he's willing to put the option on the table for someone to sign off on and see what happens. If someone else says no to the request, then he can at least say that he floated the idea rather than shooting it down straight away. Cut to M City where we get a news report regarding the whereabouts of Miguel, saying that state troopers have closed Bear Mountain following a reported sighting. The reporter says that while an extensive search was mounted, Miguel has evaded capture once again, and that he's been on the run for three weeks now. I was convinced that Bear Mountain was going to be a made-up place, but no, Bear Mountain State Park is a real location in New York's Hudson Highlands, which is about 50 miles outside of New York City. Despite its name, sadly there are no wild bears to be found in Bear Mountain, although there are some housed at the nearby Trailside Museum and Zoo. The news report also details that Judge Mason Kessler, who we saw a couple of episodes back and for some reason is referred to as Mason Kessler here, has agreed to allow Nat to be executed two months earlier than scheduled, with the execution to be carried out the following Thursday. Cut to death row where Mark continues to work away on his self-portrait as Lepresti accompanies Pete to meet with Nat. Pete enters the cell as Nat unveils their new outfit, a royal blue power suit complete with red wig. Pete tells Nat that they look like Susan Harewood, which was apparently Nat's intention and would fit with Nat's character going for that bit of Hollywood glamour, but all I can see is Margaret Thatcher. I don't know if that's just down to the Tory blue suit or what, but yeah, big Maggie Thatcher vibes off of this. Nat tells Pete that they're grateful for everything that she's done for them, but they've got one last favour to ask. Pete says that she'll do anything, but all Nat wants doing is their nails, Nat claiming that they're so excited that they can't hold the brush still. They sit down on the bed and Pete starts to paint but Nat feels queasy almost straight away and Pete tells them to lie down, and that she'll finish their nails later. The scene closes with Nat saying that at 5am they have a date with an angel, as Pete tells them to rest before we head off to M-City at night time with Chucky smoking a cigarette and talking to Don. Ginsburg's dead tomorrow because he killed Antonio Napa. Yeah. You wanted him to do it? Yeah. Does that bother you a little? He's dying because of you. No. This is the life we chose. Sure, but Chucky, are you afraid of dying? No. What the fuck 
you doing with a cigarette, Pancamo? Smoking it. Put it out. Now. Or I'm coming in there. Now her, I'm afraid of. That moment shows up quite often on all's best moments or funniest moments videos, and in all fairness is a bit of a stupid question from Claire. What's interesting about the whole thing for me though is that this went a long way to really establishing Chucky as the leader of the Italians now. We've not seen him for quite some time other than hanging around with Adebisi and Morales, and we've certainly not seen a whole lot of the lower members of the Italian group. But Don questioning Chucky about how he feels about Nat dying and being the one who caused it, as well as Chucky telling Don that this is the life they chose, a possible reference to the two of them having become made men, the fact that Chucky feels as though he has to remind Don of that firmly established his place not only in Oz, but his place in wider society as well. Over in Unit B, Robson and Schilling are also talking about Nat's execution. Robson's saying that he's heard that Nat has chosen to die in the gas chamber, an option which has never been available in New York State, but let's not dwell on the details, with Schillinger saying that it would be an okay way to go, sitting there breathing in and out one minute, and then the next minute you don't know anything. I mean, historically there's probably other reasons why this might be favourable with these two in how it relates to Ginsburg, but Robson switches the conversation to how instead of a final meal, they should give you one last blowjob. As Robson's hand doth venture south, we cut to Death Row as we hear the faraway sound of the church bell chiming, once again giving us a sense of impending doom. Moses heads to the bars of his cell while Mark gets underneath his bed covers, as Lepresti opens up Nat's cell as Pete, Ray and Leo stand by. Leo tells Nat that it's time, but there's no response from Nat. Leo calls Nat's name again, but there's still no response, as Pete makes her way into the cell and places a hand on Nat's. She tells Leo that Nat is cold, taking a seat next to him and says that Nat is dead. Leo ordering Lepresti to get a doctor, which, you know, probably a bit late for that now, Leo. Might as well just send for the coroner. Ray remarks about Nat passing away in their sleep of natural causes, with Pete mentioning about how beautiful Nat looks as she takes Nat's right hand and finishes painting Nat's nails to close the scene. We've had a fair number of deaths occur on the show so far, but very few of them so far have actually tugged at the heartstrings. I was talking with some listeners a few weeks back about what were the saddest deaths on the show, and I'd say that this is up there with them, even though it's for what is a very minor character in the grand scheme of things. Nat mentioned last episode about how it would be interesting which would kill them first, the state or the disease. Clearly Nat had come to terms with her impending death, but it's very obvious that they didn't want to succumb to the AIDS virus, hence why they asked to be executed earlier than planned. To have that dying wish taken away from them the night beforehand? That's very sad. And Pete also keeping a promise of finishing painting Nat's nails was a lump in the throat moment too. Fade up on a new day in M-City where we see the inmates gathering in the common area, as well as Augustus manoeuvring his way into his chair and smacking Mobe on the arm to wake him up, Lance Reddick giving us another of his amazing facial expressions when being jolted awake. Before Mobe can get going though, he needs to take a hit of drugs which he gets from underneath his pillow, although he seems to be out of whatever it is that he's taking. So Mobe is slipping further and further into drug addiction rather than just taking the odd hit now. We dissolve to the classroom where Mobey and another of other inmates have been called to meet with Adebisi, Chucky and Morales. Chucky tells the group that tomorrow they get healthy, Mobey not seeming to understand what Chucky is meaning, 
as Poet explains that getting healthy means they're getting a new shipment in. Mobe asks whereabouts it's coming in, but Adabezi tells him that it's none of Mobe's business, and that Mobe, along with Leroy and Mondo, must bring in five new babies. Mobe once again not understanding the terminology, Mondo this time explaining that a baby is a new customer. Adabezi appoints Poet as the supervisor of the operation, but Mobe says that he doesn't need supervising, something which doesn't sit well with Adabezi, who tells Mobe that he needs to learn to take an order, the scene closing with Mobe backing down somewhat and telling Adabezi, yes sir. It's difficult to tell whether or not Mobe is just really bad at being undercover, seemingly not knowing any of the jargon used among the other dealers, or if he was sent into or severely underprepared for his role, as you would think that he would have had a crash course in what to look out for and some of the jargon used. It could also be a case that the jargon or the code speak that's used in Oz is different to that of other prisons, Adabezi and Chucky possibly having done a complete overhaul from when Napper and even Nino before him was running the operation. Cut to Leo's office where Mobe is called in. As he enters, Mobe looks absolutely terrified, Leo saying to him, You know Detective Magori from Homicide? So this is our first meeting with Detective Guinevere Magori, played by Connie Nelson. Very little information out there about Connie Nelson, but from what I could find, this was something of an early acting role for her. Making her acting debut in the 1991 movie Caged Fear, Connie would make her TV debut in 1994, appearing in the third season premiere of Walker, Texas Ranger on CBS. In 1996, Connie appeared as Dina Grossard in the duly Dyer-directed movie Late Bloomers, for which she won the Best Actress Award at the Lone Star Film and Television Awards. In 1997, Connie made her first appearance on Law & Order, appearing as Anna Zakarian in the show's eighth season, before appearing here on Oz. Mobe asks if she's come to Oz regarding the death of Bruno, Leo saying that while Bruno may have been a bad cop, he did turn evidence in the state's gun smuggling case, and that the DA is pissed that his prime witness lasted less than a week in Oz. Magori asks Mobe if he has any idea who might have killed Bruno, Mobe saying that he thought it was being treated as an accident, as we see the first of the many Bruno falling to his death flashbacks. Magori says that her gut feels otherwise though, as Mobe inquires about whether or not someone found out that Bruno was a cop and had him killed, but Magori thinks this is something else, although she's not sure what exactly. We get Bruno falling to his death flashback number two, just in case you didn't see it ten seconds ago, as Mobe says that he'll help in any way that he can, as Magori says to let her know if he hears anything, and then dismisses herself to go and conduct interviews, saying that she's starting with Bruno's cellmate although we don't find out who that was. She shakes Mobe's hands as she leaves, as Leo asks him about having made any headway with Adabezi and the boys. Interesting how Leo sees Adabezi as the leader of the operation, rather than being equal with Chucky and Morales. Mobe informs Leo about the new shipment, but that he was unable to find out where it's coming in, as well as Adabezi wanting him to recruit some new buyers. Just in case the point hadn't been hammered home enough already, Leo says that, as a police officer, you can't sell drugs. But Mobe tells him that he'll use the cash that he already has to pretend to have found his new babies. Watching the show back, one of the things I like to do is look for little details in the background. And in this scene, I liked how Leo has a photo of President Clinton on his bookshelf, but he's angled it so that Clinton is looking away from him. Having pictures of the serving president isn't unusual. 
Although it's not required by law, over 1,600 government buildings across the country contain a portrait of the president and vice president, as well as in military installations, in embassies, courthouses, airports, and among other places. The positioning of it also could be a comment on how Leo and President Clinton will have had different political views, as Leo is a staunch conservative Republican, while President Clinton was of course a Democrat. The fact that he has it in a standard photo frame rather than on his wall is a great touch too. Almost as if to say, well, if I have to have it here then fine, but I'm putting it where I want. Having it on the bookshelf towards the door too, perhaps symbolic of Clinton about to head out of the door as he was coming to the end of his second term in office, and this was of course in election year. Cut to the kitchen where Adebisi sends Poet to talk with Mobey about his new recruits, Mobey saying that he's found two new babies. Poet asks Mobey who they are, but Mobey tells him that he doesn't know their names. Poet then asks Mobey to point them out to him, but wouldn't you know it, they've already left. Mobey hands over some cash and tells Poet that he's out of tips, Poet reaching into his book to hand over a new supply to Mobey and tells him to keep on selling. Cut to nighttime where Mobey is keeping Augustus awake with his snorting. Augustus tells him to pack it in because he's trying to get to sleep. Turning over in something of a comatose haze, Mobey breaks character and tells Augustus, so sleep, in his normal American accent. Augustus asks him what he said, as Mobe snaps back into reality, realising what's just happened. Lance Reddick once again doing all of his acting through his facial expressions. This one saying, Oh fuck, what the fuck do I do now? Mobe assumes his Jamaican identity once again, saying that he said nothing and apologises to Augustus, as we get a colour filter montage of the numerous times that Mobe has snorted his drugs on the show so far, with the scene closing with Mobe throwing his drug vial into the toilet, and Augustus giving him a hard stare through the mattress. With his cover possibly blown due to his drug taking, Mobe heads to meet with Sister Pete as we close out Act 2. Sister Peter Marie, um, I'm glad the warden told you I really am. Um, I need to talk, and I need this to be confidential. Of course. Oz is my first big undercover assignment. A lot of the guys I work with in narcotics didn't think I could handle the job, but I knew I could. I thought I could. Left my wife and son. Um, told them I'd be gone. I don't know how many months. Abby, uh, that's my wife. Um, she's worried, naturally, that I'll be found out, that I'll be killed. Today's Robbie's birthday. <laughs> um, I thought I was close to busting the drug ring, but I'm not. Only I've got to. I blow this, my career is over. I, I'm back to riding the subways, roasting bums, so I gotta stay. I gotta see this through. But. Sister, I I'm an addict. Act 3 gets underway with Augustus hanging by his ankles, explaining the meaning behind the phrase head over heels, and how it probably does describe being in love after all, 
as we get a flashback to the fight between Beecher and Keller that finished off the previous episode. We get a flash cut to the hull where we see Keller urinating into a bucket. And I can't remember which interview I read this in, but according to Chris Maloney, that shot of Keller pissing into the bucket attracted a record number of complaints to the FCC at the time. Racism, rape, murder, that's all fine apparently. But it turns out a guy taking a piss is a step too far for some people. There's no gradual slowdown as Keller finishes his piss either. Apparently he can just turn it on and off like a tap. Over in M-City, Beecher is talking with Saeed about how his son is dead and that nothing can change that. Nor can anything change the fact that Keller killed Gary. Saeed tries to talk Beecher around, saying that killing Keller is no way to mourn his son. Beecher asks if Saeed is defending Keller, which Saeed denies because he clearly wasn't, but he does say that Keller needs to be punished, but that Beecher isn't the one to do that. Before they carry on though, Ray knocks on the pod glass and tells Beecher that the FBI have found Holly, but most importantly they've found her alive. Beecher looks to the heavens with a mixture of shock and joy and embraces Saeed, something which even gets a little chuckle out of Saeed, even he doesn't know quite how to react to all of this. Cut to the interview room, where Agent Taylor informs Beecher about investigating the lead that Beecher gave him about Bob Bigbutt Tolland. But Taylor says that he wasn't involved as he'd been arrested two days prior to the kidnapping and was awaiting arraignment at the Crown and Shield holding centre. That doesn't seem to be a real place, but when googling it I did come across an English to Polish translation site, and whoever runs that seems to be a big Oz fan as when you search Crown and Shield on there, you get Taylor's line verbatim as the search result. Realising that Bob and his ample butt cheeks weren't involved in the kidnapping, and as confirmed by Ray, Beecher realises that Keller is innocent in all of this, as Taylor says they arrested the real kidnapper earlier that morning, Ray telling Beecher that the perpetrator was Hank Schillinger. We get a quick scene of Taylor meeting with Schillinger for questioning, saying that they have a couple of items to discuss, before heading back to the hall where a CO throws Keller his clothes and necklace to take him back to M-City. Upon his return, Keller and Beecher are summoned to meet with Querns, who says that he has a file full of fights between the two of them, as well as a line that I'm just going to play because I just can't do it the justice it deserves. I've got a file just full of fights between you two. Plus, I'm told you like to fuck each other up the ass. Admitting that he's not wild about either practice, Querns tells Keller that he's moving him to a different pod, and that if either of them touches the other again, whether that's in love or war, he'll transfer them both to Genpop. Bit odd that he would transfer them both to Genpop should anything else happen, surely splitting them up would solve the problem, but then again, if both of them are out of M-City, then they're someone else's problem entirely, so that's probably Quern's reasoning. Quern's tells Keller to go and pack his things, but he's got other business to discuss with Beecher. Saying that he's heard from Leo that Schillinger might be responsible for Gary's death, he tells Beecher that he has to have his movements through Oz restricted for the time being, meaning that Beecher has temporarily lost his library and gym privileges, and that he'll have all of his meals in MC. Beecher feels as though he's being punished for Schillinger's actions, which I can kind of see where he's coming from, but Quern says that seeing as he's recently transferred out the Aryan population of M-City to other units, M-City is in fact the safest place for Beecher to be something which raises a joke between the two of them about the so-called safety of the unit. I quite liked this scene as we actually got to see Querns doing some actual managing of the unit for once. Everything that we've seen of him so far has been to serve not only his own agenda, 
but also that of Adebisi as far as making M-City a black unit, so to speak. While he does threaten to transfer Keller and Beecher out should they come to blows again, which as I said would eliminate a problem for him and open up two more spaces potentially for more black inmates, he isn't just going to that as a resolution, he's actually giving the pair of them a chance. Him essentially placing Beecher under house arrest was also good to see in that he is actively seeking a way to avoid any further confrontation, thus keeping up his end of the bargain as it relates to Leo's no-violence mandate. Beecher heads down to his pod to talk with Keller, who is understandably pissed off at Beecher for thinking that he could order the murder of a child, specifically Beecher's child. He says that Beecher has plenty of reasons to assume the worst of him, but that he worked hard to regain not only Beecher's trust, but his love as well, but this just proves that he hasn't regained any of that. Beecher begs Keller to listen so that he can explain himself, but Keller isn't having any of it and tells Beecher that they're through. Beecher says that Keller has to forgive him, just like how he did, but Keller tells him no, and that for forgiving him, that must make Beecher the better man. Keller leaves the pod as Beecher gets acquainted with his new cellmate, Mondo, who places his things on the top bunk, but Beecher grabs Mondo's things and throws them on the bottom bunk, saying that the top is his. Mondo gets up in Beecher's grill, telling him that it ain't no more, but before anything can get out of hand, Adebisi enters the pod and tells Mondo to play nice. A faraway voice calls for lunch detail as Adebisi tells Mondo to follow him, Mondo departing from Beecher by miming a kiss towards his new cellmate. So Keller and Beecher in the latest instalment of their on-again, off-again relationship are firmly planted in off-territory. It's hard to choose which one of them to root for as it's easy to see why Beecher came to the conclusion that he did having been burned by Keller in the past. But at the same time, Keller is very much a victim of circumstance due to the FBI's investigation into the series of homosexual kidnappings and murders. The only real winner in all of this, up until the point of Hank getting arrested, was Schillinger, due to his mortal enemy now being at loggerheads with his lover, with Schillinger being more than willing to just sit back and let Keller and Beecher destroy each other. Speaking of Schillinger, we cut to the kitchen where Robson sits down to eat with him and asks about Hank's arrest. Schillinger says that once Hank let Holly go, he was surrounded by the feds. So could it be that Schillinger's phone call got picked up in one of the random monitorings? It's not really made clear here, so we'll have to see if it gets explained in a future episode. Robson asks if Schillinger is concerned that Hank will give him up as being the mastermind behind the kidnapping, especially if Hank is pressured to do so. But Schillinger says that he doesn't know, as Keller makes his way over to them. Hey, Vern. Four marriages. I never had any kids, so I don't know dick about parenting, but you, fuck. You deserve some sort of prize. One son, you give him drugs knowing he'll OD. The other, you set up for a lethal injection. You're father of the fucking year. But you know what the best news is? When both your sons are dead, that'll be the end of it, because you ain't making any more children, not in here. So that when you die, your name dies with you. Everything you are dies when you do. Be a better place. Over in the M City washroom, Beecher is having a shave, which is a shame as I always thought he looked better with a bit of facial hair, as Keller enters looking to take a shower. Mondo and Leroy are already in there, and not missing a chance to stir shit up, they're all, well, 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 look what we got here, as Mondo asks if Keller is cool with him fucking Beecher, who he describes as being Keller's girlfriend. 
Keller says that he doesn't care what Mondo or Beecher does, as they talk about not wanting trouble in M-City, and it going on record that he's got Keller's permission to fuck Beecher up the Yazoo. His words, not mine. Beecher leaves as do Mondo and Leroy, leaving Keller to take his shower. Chris Maloney has definitely spent more time naked than he has clothed in this episode. Having been left to his own devices, Keller cranks up the hot tap and holds his wrist underneath the steaming hot water, turning the skin red with what is most likely a first degree burn. We cut to Ray holding confessional with Keller, who's sporting a bandage on his wrist due to the water, as he explains to Ray that he did it in order to remember what hell felt like. Keller hits the classic, bless me father for I have sinned, and confesses to having committed numerous homosexual acts in the last year. He asks if Ray wants him to elaborate, Ray politely declining the offer, as Keller drops a major confession. Before coming to Oz, I had sex with several men. And then I whacked them. What? After sex, I murdered them. Why? I didn't want him to tell. I didn't want him to speak my name. You have to go to the authorities and confess. What? You can't absolve me? I can absolve you, but the only way to show God that you're truly sorry is to go to the police. Look. I'm truly sorry, okay? So just fucking absolve me. No. Damn you, the fucking hell, you goddamn heck in black. So the waters are continuing to get a little muddy, and you can see why Beecher was willing to believe that Keller was involved in his children's kidnappings, because Keller did have a history of doing so after all, something which he has kept from Beecher, for obvious reasons. It'll be interesting to see what Ray does with this information too, his little oh no at the end there signifying that even he doesn't know what to do. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, they're very clear on the matter that whatever is said in the confessional is confidential. According to the Code of Canon Law laid out by the Vatican, it is stated that the sacramental seal is inviolable, therefore it is absolutely forbidden for a confessor, in this case Ray, to betray in any way a penitent in words or in any manner and for any reason. The interpreter, if there is one, and all others who in any way have knowledge of sins from confession are also obliged to observe secrecy. A confessor is prohibited completely from using knowledge acquired from confession to the detriment of the penitent, even when any danger of revelation is excluded. A person who has been placed in authority cannot use in any manner for external governance the knowledge about sins which he has received in confession at any time. Much like Napa back in series 3, Keller refers to Ray as being a hack in black. And I really want Ray to get some guys together so that he can form that ACDC tribute act. 
Cut to nighttime in M City where Beecher and Keller are just staring daggers at each other from their respective pots. Mondo approaches Beecher from behind and tells him, Come on, suck my dick. With a hint of sarcasm, Beecher calls Mondo a romantic and asks if that's how he talks to his women. Mondo saying that when he's horny, the less talk the better. Beecher removes his t-shirt, all the while still staring a hole through Keller, and tells Mondo to pucker up, even referring to him as Loverboy, as the two of them start to make out as Keller looks on to close out Act 3. So the mind games have begun between Beecher and Keller, all of which seem to involve Mondo Brown in some way, something which I had no recollection of happening. Was Beecher right to believe that Keller was involved in the kidnapping? Well, yeah, in a way, because Keller has now confessed to the crimes that the FBI are investigating him for. But he'll only be proven correct if Keller confesses to Beecher himself, because the only person that has that vital evidence, the smoking gun if you will, is Ray, a man sworn to secrecy, and Keller knows that. He went to Ray to confess for a reason, he knew exactly what he was doing. The big question is whether or not Beecher is worth fighting for, and that depends on whether or not what you see Keller and Beecher as having as being in true love or not. Keller seemed adamant that he and Beecher were through, especially with how he spoke about him to Mondo and Leroy. But Beecher is the only one who seems to be proceeding with these mind games, seemingly trying to make Keller jealous. But if Keller feels that they're through, why would he care what Beecher does? Something which he even references himself. It's all a bit of a mindfuck at the moment with where their story is going, but there's still plenty there to hook you with how it plays into the wider story of Beecher vs. Schillinger. Come on, Beecher, suck my dick. Jesus, you're such a romantic. Not the way you talk to your women. <laughs> well, when I'm horny, the less talk, the better. Okay, lover boy. Act 4 sees Augustus hanging in a cage detailing the origin of the term jailbird, and how the chirping that happens in Oz isn't as pretty as that of a canary or a parakeet, as we once again get a flashback of Rebido murdering El Cid. In M-City, the guys are watching Miss Sally, because that's all they ever seem to watch other than a well-timed exposition news report, as Rebido makes his way down the stairs to talk with Morales. Rebido asks Morales about having had the time to think over his previous request of killing someone else, and mentions about killing El Cid, which is quite a bold move considering that there were two CEOs stood about five feet away just seconds ago. They head off so that they can speak privately. As Morales says that, and on what is probably a rare occasion, there isn't actually anybody that he needs murdered right now, although he uses the word exterminated, which I thought was really cool. Factor in that he's recently been named one of the M-City trustees and promised Quern's there will be no violence, he asks Rebido to ask for something else, Rebido saying that Morales is going against his word. Rebido has his heart set on killing somebody though, with Morales asking why does he need his permission if that's the case, but it's the protection that Rebido is after. Morales tells him that he can give him the protection, with Rebido asking if that's the case regardless of who his victim ends up being. Seeming somewhat agitated, Morales asks whether or not Rebido is planning to do something crazy like whacking Chucky which Rebido dismisses, he's not that crazy. After Morales asks who it is that Rebido is planning to kill, we get a mysterious who indeed from Rebido. Unintentionally hilarious closing line there, but it certainly seems to have put Morales on edge a little, 
really getting over the unpredictable threat that Ribido has become recently. Cut to the kitchen where Ribido is holding his lunch tray and eyeing up the lunch line scouting his next victim. A smiling Ribido then fires off a machine gun into the crowd, shooting Jazz, Ryan, Adebisi, Schellinger, Keller among others in the back, and that's it. That's the end of Oz. If you want to go back and listen to any episodes of the podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your... I'm joking, of course, this is not the end of the show. Merely a dream sequence of what Ribido would like to do as we snap back into reality and Ribido spots Boost Malas making his way to his seat to eat his lunch. It does come a little out of nowhere, this dream sequence, but it does work well as this is something that has avoided using the colour filters that seem to have crept their way into this series. The -the over-the-top screaming from Ryan as well as the dead eyes on Keller helped make it look a little more daft too, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Seemingly used to being ignored by his cellmate, Boosmalis misses Ribido's request of being able to join him for lunch, even asking, you're talking to me? You're actually saying words intended for my ears? Ribido admits that he's been treating Boosmalis badly lately and that he wants to apologise. They clear the air and say that all is forgiven, as Ribido offers Boosmalis his pie as a peace offering. Boosmalis overcome with joy of having his friend back, but we get a not-so-subtle look from Ribido as if to say, fucking idiot, he doesn't know what's coming. Cut to nighttime in M-City, where Boosmalis is in bed, saying that he's tired but happy because he's got his friend back, he had some edible chicken for dinner, life it seems is good. Ribido is doing sit-ups on the floor, wearing a piece of cloth like a bandana as if he's preparing for war. He was wearing it in the previous scene too, but wearing it more like a neckerchief. He says that he's been reading The Art of War by Sun Tzu, which dates back to the 5th century during the spring and autumn period of China's history, and has learnt that the instinct to kill is as common as the need to procreate, meaning that those in Oz could actually be considered the normal ones. He asks whether or not Boosmalis thinks that's funny but Boosmalas has drifted off to sleep. Sensing his opportunity to strike, possibly learned from one of the chapters of Art of War, Ribido retrieves a shrank from beneath the shelf above the sink, which looks to be more of a blade rather than the ice pick that he used to kill El Cid. He raises the blade as Boosmalas' eye opens ever so slightly, which was just enough for him to get his bearings as he manages to hold off Ribido's attack. Asking his friend what he's doing, Boosmalis calls for help, which arrives in the form of Claire and Officer Dagnasty, who we've not seen for quite some time. I think the last time we saw him was when he was refereeing the boxing tournament, or he could have been a part of the sort during the season opener. Dagnasty pulls Ribido away from Boosmalis, who suffered a cut to the arm as Ribido is led away. Boosmalis is confused as to why Ribido has attacked him, as we cut to Ribido and his old man ass being led down to the hall. Ribido is locked away and the viewing window closed, as he lays down on the floor and goes back to doing his sit-ups, which probably isn't a good idea as the hole always seems to be fucking filthy. These Rebido segments haven't quite hit the dislike that I had for William Giles, but they don't really seem to be going anywhere at the moment and are purely being used as a framing device to break up the main plot lines. That in and of itself isn't a bad thing, sometimes a show needs that just to break things up a little bit and allow for those peaks and valleys in the floor but you've got to have a destination as to where that story is going to go, which doesn't seem to be the case right now in this Ribido story. Could Ribido have possibly killed off one of the lower-level inmates of M-City? 
Possibly, and from that you could have had him continue with this newfound bloodlust, only to have Morales refuse him his protection, and maybe spun that into a storyline between those two. But as things stand right now, and to borrow a phrase from Quans, this storyline seems a little rudderless. Fade up on Ryan in the kitchen pantry, who's making a call using the cell phone, and fucking hell man, why haven't you disabled the sound on those buttons? They're so fucking loud, it's like he's sending Morse code. Getting through to some guy named Eddie, he asks if he can get it done by next week, although what it is exactly remains a mystery. Over in protective custody, Quans visits with Nikolai, who wants to know if he's put Quans in solitary or not for trying to kill him. Quans, however, hasn't moved Jazz, because neither man will tell him why they were fighting, other than Nikolai saying that it's personal. So he's kind of at a loose end and has no reason to send Jazz anywhere. And it would be McManus who has to move Jazz anyway, because Jazz is in Unit B now. That's not Quan's decision to make. Reminding Nikolai that he requested to be moved to protective custody and that he sanctioned that, Quan says that sooner or later he'll be bringing Nikolai back to MC, and that maybe Jazz or even possibly one of his biker buddies will finish the job, and that if he wants to keep it personal then so be it, as he turns around and starts to leave. Nikolai asks him to wait and that he'll tell Quan's everything, as we then cut to M-City where the inmates are getting shaken down along with a voiceover of Nikolai detailing about Ralph having the cell phone to begin with, but that Ryan has it now and that he's hidden it somewhere in M-City. After a lot of shaking of bedsheets and throwing around of mattresses, Quans heads down and gets in Ryan's face, demanding to know where the cell phone is. Ryan plays dumb to the whole thing, taking the piss with his turn by calling him Mr. Quans and saying that cell phones are against the rules, sir. Cyril is keeping his head down throughout all of this, which really should have been a red flag to Quans, but he heads back to protective custody to speak with Nikolai again. More background details that I loved in this little scene were how laid-back Supreme and Poet were being about everything, as well as the blue shirt that Adebisi is sporting. I don't remember ever seeing him in that shirt before. It was an odd colour to see him in. Quans tells Nikolai that without the cell phone he has no way of proving Nikolai's story and that he'll leave Nikolai in protective custody for a couple more days, but after that he'll be bringing him back to MC, Nikolai implying that Quans is bringing him back to die. Accepting his fate, Nikolai asks Quans to allow him to see his girlfriend as well as a rabbi. Cut to Nikolai meeting with his girlfriend in the visiting room. The actress playing Nikolai's girlfriend here went uncredited and says very little in this scene, but she's also using that very typical Russian accent that people use when imitating those from the motherland. Although her pronunciation of my angel is pretty spot on, so maybe this actress is actually Russian, I don't know. He tells her that he's likely to be dead very soon, but he wants her to do something for him. He hands her a piece of paper with a phone number and says to call it at 5pm sharp. They speak Russian to each other, presumably some words of affection, before having a final kiss together as we head back to M-City where the guys are watching Devlin's campaign ad. Augustus narrates about being caught red-handed as the clock counts down to five o'clock for the inmates to head back to their pods. In my proudest moment as your governor, I signed the law that reinstated the death penalty. Together, we've made great strides in the war on crime. There's much more to do. Let's finish the job. The courage to leave. James Devlin, governor. A long time ago, if a man stole another man's cow or lamb or pig and butchered it and was found with the animal's blood on his fingers, he was said to be caught red-handed. 
course, if the robber was too cocky to wash his hands, maybe he deserved to get busted. Count! Officer Smith follows the ringing sound and discovers the phone taped to the underside of a chair, echoing Augustus' monologue about a person being cocky because that is one of the worst places I've ever fucking seen to hide something. How no one found it before now, especially considering they've just had a shakedown, is beyond me. Back in protective custody, a smug Nikolai lays down for the night, very proud of having gotten another one over on Ryan, as we get a montage of Quern's questioning Jazz and Ryan about the phone. Jazz denies killing Ralph and that it's his word against his, presumably referring to Ryan, who himself says that he has five guys who can back him up, as Quern's looks pissed that he isn't getting anywhere with this. Similar to how Leo suffered due to a lack of evidence in past series with his lines of questioning. In his pod, Ryan is with Cyril, who's sleeping as well as with Adebisi, Ryan telling him that he wants Nikolai dead. Adebisi says that he can't do anything while Nikolai is in protective custody, Ryan moaning that he thought Adebisi had some clout with some of the guards. Before Adebisi goes, he asks whether or not Cyril sleeps all day, Ryan mentioning about him being on new medication, as Adebisi slaps Cyril's feet together but gets no reaction, which was a nice touch. Adebisi says that maybe Cyril is a little too calm and then heads out of the pod. Taking far too long to catch on to what Adebisi is meaning, Ryan eventually checks on his little brother, who is still unresponsive despite Ryan giving him a damn good shaking. Ryan heads to talk with Smith, saying that there's something wrong with Cyril and to call a doctor. Smith calls in a code 16, meaning that he needs immediate medical assistance, as Cyril is taken to the hospital where Gloria orders two large IVs of saline and says that they need to tube him. Sister Pete comes running in asking what's happened, with Gloria saying that Cyril's OD'd on the Haldol. Cyril's sedation is just one of a number of possible side effects that he could have suffered, with others including either a sudden rise or fall in blood pressure, while more severe cases may see someone slip into a coma, which I guess is what's happened here. According to studies, the dose required to suffer an overdose from Haldol is quite high, but it's also very rare as it tends to be administered by a medical professional, something which plays on Ryan's mind as he paces at the M-City gates waiting for news on his brother. Saeed approaches him trying to get some news, but Ryan says that he isn't being told anything, and he says that Gloria did it deliberately as a way of getting back at him, Ryan somehow managing to make the entire situation about himself once again. Saeed doesn't believe that Gloria is capable of doing such a thing, as Ryan disagrees with him saying that she hates him and mentions to Saeed that Gloria thinks that he hired Keenan to rape her, and that now she has Cyril in her clutches and there's nothing he can do about it as he calls out for his brother. That line from Saeed about Gloria not being capable was interesting, as you'll remember back at the start of the series she was talking about putting Cyril to sleep permanently, although we said at the time that she was joking but maybe not joking, so who knows, maybe she is responsible for this overdose. 
With Cyril sedated, Gloria returns to her desk where Pete is waiting for her. Gloria, how's Cyril? Well, he pumped his stomach. He's breathing normally. Problem is, we don't know how long he was unconscious before they brought him in, so next few hours he'll be dicey, but I think he'll be fine. How does that make you feel? Are we suddenly in session? No. No, I just want to be sure that he gets the best care that he can. Oh, and you don't think that I'm capable of separating my professional obligations from my anger? I think that right now you're so turned around you can't see which way to go. I have other patients, Pete. Gloria, Gloria, Ryan O'Reilly did not hire that man to rape you. He admitted that he did. He told you what you wanted to hear. Keenan raped me because of O'Reilly. The attack on you was random. If Keenan hadn't raped you, he would have raped someone else. In the gym, Ryan runs into Keenan, who's working out. Ryan looks at Keenan's necklace and mentions the look of the Irish, before taking a seat and saying that he wants Keenan to do something for him, and asks Keenan to tell him about the night he raped Gloria. Keenan says that he saw her heading into her apartment and that she looked so hot, as we then begin to cut between this scene and Gloria attending to Cyril, who's complaining that his head hurts. Cyril asks where Ryan is and how Gloria doesn't like himself or Ryan, as we then cut back to the gym with Keenan giving more gruesome details about the attack. Cyril says that Ryan does bad things, but that he isn't bad deep down, and that he loves Gloria with all of his heart, as Keenan finishes his brutal recollection. Ryan saying that Keenan sure did a number on Gloria, as he places his workout gloves on his hands and asks Keenan about wanting to work for him. Ryan says that he does things differently in Oz than when he was out on the street, giving the example of how when he wants someone dead, he'll convince someone else to do it for him by making them think that the two of them are enemies, and that by doing so it won't be traced back to him. Keenan admits that is pretty cool, as Ryan mentions about how Keenan has seven years until parole. Moving behind where Keenan is sitting, Ryan asks him if he thinks he'll go the distance, Keenan saying that he thinks so, as Ryan tells him to keep believing that. Asking about the time he said about how he got someone to kill for him, what with it being so long ago that they were speaking about it, Ryan picks up a dumbbell using a towel to wrap the handle, and as he holds the weight above his head, says that in Keenan's case, he'll make an exception, striking Keenan in the head not once, not twice, but thrice, as we see Keenan's mangled head hit the gym floor. Ryan repositions himself and throws the weight down on Keenan's head one more time. But what's this? In the background, a reef is standing at the entrance of the basketball court having witnessed Ryan's final blow. Much like Andre the Giant did to Hulk Hogan in 1987, Ryan swipes Keenan's necklace as a reef makes his escape. Ryan holds the shamrock high, much like how a serial killer takes a trophy from his victim, before spitting on his fallen adversary and leaving the gym, Keenan's blood engulfing the gym floor. They don't quite get the reveal of Arif right, as we do see him in the shot when Ryan throws the weight down. With a little more care with Ryan's positioning, as well as that of the actual camera shot, this could have been a much better reveal by having Arif standing there when Ryan bends over to pick up the shamrock rather than seeing him just beforehand. I will admit that's probably a minor niggle on my part, but that could have been a great moment with just a little bit more care and attention. Dissolved Gloria declaring Keenan dead, seen as most of his head is missing, 
and telling the nurse to take him down to the morgue before returning to her desk. She finds an envelope with a letter, written in a mixture of upper and lowercase letters which annoyed me no end, reading, All for you, Gloria, all for you, as well as containing Keenan Shamrock. Gloria meets with Leo to discuss the night of her attack and that the only thing she remembered was the Shamrock and how the light from the street lamp kept bouncing off it. She admits that when they brought Keenan into the ER, she thought to herself, Good, he's dead and says that Leo was right about coming back to work too soon and that she needs to put her anger back in its proper place, and that maybe she can learn to forgive, herself as well as others. Leo takes her hand and reassures her that the job will be there whenever she decides to come back, but Gloria says that depends on whether or not she decides to come back at all. As Augustus narrates about the implementation of a death warrant, Gloria empties her desk until she decides on her future. She notices the shamrock and drops it in the bin but changes her mind and retrieves it before she heads into the ward. She approaches Cyril's bed and removes the hair from his face, perhaps indicative of her not hating him after all and showing her caring side, as we see Ryan standing up against the pod glass, completely Billy Bollocks, looking out over M-City as the episode closes. My only real memory from that night was the shamrock. I remember the light from the street lamp kept bouncing off it. When they brought Keenan into the ER, I thought, good. He's dead, good. You were right. I came back too soon. I need to take some time, you know, just put my anger back in its proper place. Maybe then I can learn to forgive. Myself more than anyone. The job will be here whenever you decide to come back. If I come back, Leo. To seal one's fate. Years ago, The death sentence could not be carried out unless the death warrant had the judge's official seal affixed to the bottom. Imagine, the only thing standing between you and death is a little lump of melted wax. But that's the thing about life. The big changes all come because of little lumps of wax. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 6, A Word to the Wise. I mentioned at the beginning of the show about how this episode had an 8.3 on IMDb, making it the second lowest of this series so far, with only obituaries having a lower score. Obviously, user ratings are completely subjective, but I don't feel as though this is a true reflection of this episode's standing, as I feel this had a much better flow and the overall pacing was much better in this episode than the previous one. There was some clunky dialogue along the way, and the show seems to be relying on flashback footage perhaps a little more than it should, but I enjoyed this one on the whole. There's still a lot up in the air with regards to the Beecher Schillinger storyline, and what's going to come out as Schillinger faces questioning from Agent Taylor, but the focus was more on the fractured Beecher-Keller relationship and where that is going rather than how Schillinger is going to strike next. 
A particular highlight for this episode was Mobay confessing to Sister Pete about being an addict. I thought Lance Reddick was great in that scene. And we also got a rare heartwarming, if incredibly sad moment in the scene with Nat Ginsberg's death and Sister Pete keeping her promise of finishing Nat's nails. Nikolai getting another one over on Ryan was enjoyable to see, and I'd also say that this is probably the best piece of acting that we've seen from Lauren Velez on the show so far, especially in that scene with Leo. Dean Winters can still be a bit hit and miss, sometimes he can be good with like how he was with Querns during the shakedown, while other times he can still be a bit too wooden for my liking. The Keenan killing was one of the better ones we've had so far though, let down only slightly by some of the blocking in the scene. If it sorted that out, the reveal of Arif witnessing the murder would have been much stronger. Having said that, it's intriguing to see how Arif will react with what he's seen. Will he go and rat Ryan out, or will he go down the route of trying to blackmail him? Similar to that, I'm interested to see how Ray reacts to Keller's confession of having committed multiple murders. He's already refused to absolve Keller, but he knows that if he goes to the authorities, he'll most likely be out of the priesthood as a result. Get the fuck out of my office. Just the one deleted scene to delve into for this episode, which sees Bruce Malice visiting with his brother Mandalayas. He asks his brother about how their mother is doing, but apparently she's quite ticked off at Boos Malice for not visiting her when he broke out of Oz. Boos Malice says that he was going to, but he'd already been captured by that time. Mandalay has given him some stick about flitting off to pursue some actress, and saying that he could understand if it was someone like Juliana Margulies, or that girl on Providence, or even Callista Flockhart. Boos Malice taking the time to do some body shaming, saying that she's too skinny, which was the style at the time. Juliana Margulies at this time had just left her role as Carol Hathaway on ER, having been on the show since 1995, and was a big name on US TV because of it. People often forget how big a show ER was. The third and fourth season of the show averaged over 30 million viewers in the US alone. That Girl from Providence is referencing Dr. Sidney Hansen, played by Melina Kanakaridis, who you'll remember of course as Marilyn Crenshaw from back in series 2, while Callista Flockhart was also a big name at the time, starring as Ali McBeal on Fox, the show having been on for three seasons by this point. Again, Ali McBeal was a massive show at the time, averaging over 12 million viewers for its third season. Disappointed that his brother decided not to pursue these women, Mandalayas lays into Miss Sally for being a mindless kids show and how she plays with puppets. Buzmala says that his brother always pisses on everything that he loves, and the two of them talk about Buzmali's love for digging, and how Mandalayas would always find Buzmali's underneath the backyard. They eventually get to the point of the visit, as Mandalayas says that their mother received a call from the actress that plays Miss Sally, who having heard about Buzmali's devotion has agreed to come and meet with him in Oz. Buzmali's at first can't believe it, but he soon gives his brother a big hug, as the scene closes with Mandalayas asking his brother to visit his mother should he ever decide to dig his way out of Oz again. A fun little scene which does plant the seed for a future plotline, and something which we have talked about in a previous deleted scene before, so it looks like they are finally getting round to doing that storyline, but it just didn't feel as though it fit with everything else in this episode. Had the episode been made today, the criticism of Callista Flockhart's weight wouldn't fly at all, not that it should have done then either, but that's probably more of a comment on how attitudes have changed over the last 20 years. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only time that we would have seen Boos Malley's brother, with the actor going uncredited, and I just can't find anything about who played him online, so apologies for that. 
Like I say, kind of fun to see the interaction between the two brothers, but not enough to warrant having it in the episode, and it hasn't aged well with some of those image comments in it either, so the correct decision to cut it. With a death toll of two for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Patrick Keenan and Nat Ginsberg, played by Dylan Chalfie and Charles Bush, respectively. Following his brief run on Oz, Dylan appeared on Law & Order Special Victims Unit during the show's third season, as well as appearing in two episodes of Rescue Me in 2007. After appearing as Stanley Webber in two episodes of Law & Order, Dylan had minor roles on TV in Blue Bloods in 2011, The Americans in 2013, and Orange is the New Black in 2014, as well as the movie's Chinese Puzzle and Cold Comes the Night in 2013. In 2016, Dylan appeared in one episode of Person of Interest on CBS, as well as the short film Arts and Crafts, with his most recent acting credit coming in 2020 for the short film The Pink of Coincidence. Away from acting, Dylan formed the company Stage Presence Communications in 2015, and also works as a carpenter. After leaving Oz, Charles Bush called into KACL 780 during the 10th season of Frasier for the episode Enemy at the Gate, an episode which also featured Louis Guzman, which currently places Charles at the number 12 position on the list of Oz actors to have appeared on the show. In 2003, Charles starred as both Angela and Barbara Arden in the movie adaptation of his play Die, Mommy, Die, and also appeared in the movie A Very Serious Person in 2006, playing the role of Jan. While in 2008, Charles appeared on TV as Ricardo Bargini in Lipstick Jungle on NBC. Following a nine-year absence from the screen, Charles appeared in the 2017 short film Say What? A Geriatric Proposal, and returned to TV in 2020 appearing in Backstage Babble, with their most recent credits coming in 2021 for the movie The Sixth Reel, and on TV for The House Arrest Roonies. Charles' main love will always be the theatre though, and in 2000 staged the play The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. The show opened in early 2000 at the Manhattan Theatre Club, before transferring to the Ethel Barrymore Theatre on Broadway. Receiving excellent reviews from critics, the play was nominated for three Tony Awards as well as two Drama Desk Awards, and two awards at the Outer Critics Circle Awards, with Charles winning the John Gassner Award for Outstanding Playwriting. Also in 2000, Charles staged the first of his annual performances of his 1984 Christmas play Times Square Angel. In 2003, Charles staged a revival of his 1999 play Shanghai Moon, where he starred with Oz co-star B.D. Wong at the drama department at the Greenwich House Theatre. Charles received an Outstanding Lead Actor nomination for the play at the Lucille Lothal Awards, while at the 2003 Drama Desk Awards, Charles was honoured with their Career Achievement Award. That same year, Charles staged a benefit performance of Auntie Mame, with proceeds going to the Broadway Cares and Equity Fights AIDS charities the success of which saw the production head out on a small-scale tour in the summer of 2004. Charles' play Our Leading Lady opened at City Centre Stage 2 in 2007, which was followed by the opening of the third story at the Lajola Playhouse in September 2008. The play would also be produced in 2009 by MCC Theatre at the Lucille Lortel Theatre, where Charles starred alongside Kathleen Turner. In 2010, Charles wrote and starred in the play The Divine Sister at New York's Soho Playhouse, as well as writing and starring in 2013's The Tribute Artist, produced by Primary Stages. In 2019, Charles starred as Lucille Ball in I Loved Lucy at the Bridge Theatre in Catskill, New York, and in addition to their writing and acting, Charles has taught lectures and masterclasses at numerous universities, including Harvard, Northwestern, 
UCLA, and New York University, among others. At the time of recording, a production of the musical Taboo, for which Charles rewrote the musical book for the show's Broadway run, is set to be staged at the London Palladium in January 2022, raising funds for the Terence Higgins Trust, as well as the homeless charity Shelter. The Oz One and Done Club had a new member in the form of Nikolai's girlfriend, although the actress went uncredited, and we also say goodbye to Keith Samples, having directed his third and final episode of the show. Since leaving Oz, Keith has directed mostly for TV, directing multiple episodes for shows such as The Practice, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, Republic of Doyle, Make It Pop, Just Add Magic, and Mr. D. While on film, he directed Love Lies Bleeding in 2008 and 2013's Hunting Season, for which he also received a writing credit. In addition to single episode directing credits for shows such as The O.C., One Tree Hill, the rebooted Dragnet and Everwood, Keith has also earned a number of producer credits on shows such as Queen Supreme, where he also earned a writing credit, although his episode never aired due to the show being cancelled, Being Human, where he served as consulting producer, and Lifeline, where he was credited as executive producer. At the time of recording, Keith's most recent directing credits came in 2020 for two episodes of the Just Add Magic spin-off series, Just Add Magic Mystery City. While the last episode saw me hand out the first ever joint episode MVP award, this episode almost ended up being a three-way tie before I eventually managed to narrow it down. Honourable mentions go to Tim McManus for making efforts to mend a number of fences with his work colleagues by bringing a number of former M-City guys to a new home in Unit B, while Ryan came close due to him murdering a remorseless rapist, which I think most of us can agree is pretty right on. But I am going to give the award to Martin Quans for this episode for actually doing some work in his role as unit manager. He's been hit with this no violence mandate from Leo since he arrived at Oz, something which he has more or less managed to implement for the most part, but he was never going to have zero violence, that's just impossible. With the situation between Beecher and Keller escalating to an attempted murder, and as I mentioned earlier, he could have quite easily just sent them both packing to a different unit and let them be somebody else's problem, which would have most likely been with McManus in Unit B and would have opened the floodgates for more violence between the trio of Beecher, Keller and Schillinger. Instead of doing that though, he's given both of them a chance by keeping them in the unit but living apart, and he's gone the extra mile for Beecher by implementing something of a protection scheme for him although you can understand why Beecher might not see it that way. Should something happen to Beecher, or should Beecher attack again, whether that's attacking Keller, Schillinger, or anybody else for that matter, it would be on Quern's for having not dealt with the situation, so it's in his interest to keep Beecher in M-City as much as he can. The last thing that Quern wants is a repeat of the huge fight that we saw in the gym where most of the guys ended up in the hospital. So for those reasons, Martin Quern's takes the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the show by following the handle 
at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, I'll be asking how can we keep love alive and how can anything survive as we get into the car and head into Series 4, Episode 7, A Town Without Pity. Where Adebisi's reign of terror in M-City continues, Beecher enlists some help following a setback, Augustus is questioned about the death of Bruno, and a campaign event ends in disaster for Devlin. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. <laughs>